and welcome to another episode of Pilates Elephants with your host, Raphael Bender. So today I want to have a chat about which exercises are the best for strengthening abs. And this came from a question from Kobe. And Kobe says, I've been working at two studios and loving it. Amongst my colleagues, there are differences in our technique with certain exercises, in particular long stretch series. I know you said this would happen. Uh, but I'm being asked what the theory is behind the C and J shape. So that's like doing the uh, long stretch in a, a flexed position in the thorax, uh, which is the original Joseph Pilates contrology technique, uh, as opposed to neutral for long stretch. Is this purely because it is contrology? Also, or also that research has been done around neutral to show that it has no increase in activation through these exercises. My colleagues and I are not saying that either way is correct or wrong. We just more so want to get clarifications around why the different techniques. Uh, I appreciate any feedback you can provide and hope you're taking care. Thank you, Kobe. Well, Kobe, thanks for your question. So the question, uh, as I understand it, is why do we do long stretch in neutral uh, sometimes, and then other times we do it in a flexed position. So the original contrology uh, uh, position for long stretch on the reformer, which is essentially a, a plank with your hands on the foot bar and your feet, uh, well, traditionally the feet are on the, on the headrest, but pretty much everyone prefers it with the feet on the shoulder rests. Uh, so in a plank, uh, in the original contrology, the way that Joseph Pilates taught it, your torso is flexed. So like in a hundred position in the torso. Uh, whereas most uh, classical and contemporary uh, people learn that in a neutral torso position. So the question is, why the difference? Well, I think, uh, I don't know why the difference in particular, um, but my I think I've got a reasonably educated guess on why the difference. And that is because uh, neutral spine uh, really came in um, in the sort of late in the classical era, um, for one reason, and in the contemporary era for for a different reason. So in the classical era, uh, that's when Romana um, took over uh, as head the head of the Pilates uh, system, and she was a dancer, and um, you know doing a plank in a flexed position um, probably isn't as dancer like, isn't as graceful <laughs> as doing a plank in neutral. So I don't know that this is true, but this is my guess, you know, um, that, uh, you know, Romana made it look more pretty, looks more pretty in neutral. Uh, whereas Joseph did it, for, uh, basically it came from gymnastics. It's a hollow body maneuver, which is just a totally standard gymnastics uh, position. Uh, and you can see it if you go to any gymnastics lesson and watch your seven-year-old daughter you know, doing the warm-up, they'll do hollow body holds uh, in a plank position, which is essentially the long stretch. Uh, and then in uh, the contemporary era, you know, which was sort of like the late 90s, early 2000s is when that kind of really kicked off. Um, we were infusing a lot of, at the time, current physical therapy and biomechanics knowledge into Pilates. And we thought that neutral spine was safer. And um, so, you know, we, we ended up changing a lot of the Pilates exercises to be done in neutral. Uh, whereas now we know uh, neutral spine isn't particularly safer. It's not less safe. It's not more safe. It's, you know, there's, the alignment doesn't really have much to do with safety. So that's my kind of guess, you know, educated guess perhaps, as to why the difference. And it certainly doesn't, you know, like you 
and your friend suggested Kobe, that doesn't really suggest that either way is better. Um, they're both good. They're all good. Um, however, there's a second part to your question, which is, uh, is there a difference in muscle activation in the different positions? And so I want to spend a bit more time, in fact, probably most time on that question. Now, I'm going to broaden out the question to ask, really, what does influence the load or the, the strengthening stimulus on the abs in various positions? Or what are the best ab exercises? Or how do you design a great, effective ab exercise? Now, I, I want to start here by making a distinction which is that activation of a muscle is not the same thing as strengthening. And I think in Pilates, we frequently, uh, and probably in most of fitness, we frequently confuse or conflate, probably a better term, the two things. We think they're equivalent, but in fact, they're not equivalent. Please let me explain. Activation of a muscle is measured by the electrical activity. So we stick either a wire into the muscle or we stick a surface electrode onto the skin above the muscle. We measure the electrical activity, which says, really, the electrical activity tells us how much nerve impulse is going to that muscle, telling the muscle to contract. So how strongly is the brain telling the muscle to contract? Now, you would think that when a muscle contracts more strongly would you would get more strengthening from it, but that is not necessarily the case. Not always the case. Uh, because the stimulus for strengthening is not activation. It is high levels of mechanical tension on individual muscle fibers. It's actually a mechanical stimulus. So you can actually cause a muscle to get stronger without recruiting it. And they've done experiments um, on cast immobilization where they put a muscle into a stretched position and then put a cast on, and this is in some poor you know, rat or mouse or rabbit or whatever, then they denervate the muscle. So they cut the nerve to the muscle. So there is no recruitment of that muscle because the nerve's cut. And then they put the muscle in a very, very uh, high tension stretched position and leave it there for a couple of weeks. And what they find is the muscle grows bigger. So it is possible to make a muscle get stronger. Now that muscle wouldn't necessarily be stronger at the end because it can't contract anymore because there's no nerve going to it. But the principle is what makes muscles grow? It's mechanical tension, not uh, activation per se. Now, maybe you're thinking, but how, how if you're activating a muscle strongly, surely that's going to create a lot of mechanical tension. Well, sometimes, but not always. In fact, often not. So there's something called a length tension relationship. Now, the length tension relationship is something that you uh, learn when you learn about the physiology of muscle contraction. And physiology refers to what the microscopic parts at the cellular level 
or the subcellular level, the molecules that make up the cells, what they do and how they interact and how they function uh, in, you know, in humans in various situations. And so the physiology of muscle contraction is such that we have these two proteins within the muscle called actin and myosin, and they are the they're called the contractile proteins, or they are the essentially the working parts of a muscle cell. And when a muscle contracts, you know what actually happens at a cellular level is the uh, myosin, um, essentially, uh, the actin and myosin are like two long threads, two long filaments is what they're usually called. Uh, and the myosin has little ping pong bats coming off it. And the actin has little Velcro tabs on it. And the ping pong bats grab onto the Velcro tabs and pull the myosin along so that the myosin slides past the actin. So those two long threads slide lengthways past each other. One slides right to left, let the other slides left to right. And what that does is it pulls the two ends of the muscle cell closer together, shortening the muscle cell, or in other words, contracting the muscle. So when a muscle contracts, what actually happens is that these two filaments, the actin and the myosin, they pull each other, you know, well, the the myosin, in fact, pulls itself past the actin, uh, thus shortening or contracting the muscle. Now, the length tension relationship uh, says that muscles can produce the most force when they're at about their mid-range. So neither at their longest nor at their shortest. And the reason for this is when the muscles are in their mid-range, there is the greatest amount of overlap in between those actin and myosin fillets. Think about uh, filaments. Think about like two long ribbons lying on a table, one with little ping pong, mini ping pong pa- uh, paddles with Velcro on, on, the, on the blades and the other with just little Velcro tabs. And imagine they are overlapped fully, right? So the, the, the end, the two ends of, you know, the each, each end of each ribbon is level with the end of the other ribbon. So, you know, the, the ribbons are side by side. Well, as now imagine we get the end of one ribbon and pull it to the right and we get the end of the other ribbon and pull it to the left. So now the ribbons are stretched out. So they're, you know, they're taking up a longer space collectively, right? The muscle is lengthening. Well, now can you picture it? Some of those little ping pong paddles aren't next to the little Velcro tabs. Like there's no overlap for some of those. Some of those are poking off the edge and some of the little Velcro tabs at the other end don't have any ping pong paddles. So now there are fewer ping pong paddles that can latch onto those Velcro tabs and pull, right? So when we can try and contract a muscle in its fully lengthened state, there are fewer active sites of what to form what's called cross bridges, which is where the ping pong bat attaches onto the Velcro. And therefore we have a weaker contraction. There are fewer, you know, actin uh, molecules, you know, or fewer actin uh, heads, they're called, you know, pulling on the uh, myosin, sorry, heads <laughs> pulling on the actin, right? And the same when we shorten the muscle. So when we shorten the muscle, we just pull the filaments the other way, right? So if you pull the filament that's on the left to the right and the fil- filament that's on the right to the left, now they overlap the other way, right? And the other direction, uh, the other end of the filaments now have no overlap again. So there are fewer filaments crossing, fewer uh, active cross bridges able to form. 
So when a muscle is in its either it's towards its fully lengthened position or its fully shortened position, there are fewer active cross bridges able to form because there's less overlap between the actin and myosin. And that is why muscles are always strongest around their mid-range. They can produce the most force around their mid-range and they're progressively able to produce less force as they either lengthen or shorten beyond their mid-range. So a muscle in its maximally shortened situation, for example, is able to produce very little force because there is very little overlap between actin and myosin. Imagine if we took one of those ribbons and pulled it towards the right and took the other of those ribbons and pulled it towards the left and slid them along each other until there were only just a little bit of overlap, maybe just a couple of ping pong paddles overlapping with those Velcro tabs. And there's maybe 50 or 60 ping pong paddles that are just hanging off in space there. So the vast majority of them are not able to latch onto a Velcro tab and pull along. Well, just imagine in this situation, this would be a situation where maybe you're doing a clam exercise. Okay, you're lying on your side, knees are bent, feet are together, hips are flexed 90 degrees, knees are flexed 90 degrees, or maybe hips are flexed 45 degrees, and you externally rotate your top hip, lifting the knee up whilst keeping the foot in place. Well, in doing this, you shorten the fibers of the piriformis and the gluteus maximus a lot, you're, especially the piriformis and the deep lateral rotators of the hip, they're coming towards their maximally shortened position. So that as you lift your knee further and further, the muscles pro- produce less and less force because there is less and less overlap between the actin and the myosin. So your brain, knowing that the muscle is able to produce less force because it knows that the muscle's shortened, increases the neural impulse to that muscle, tells it to activate more strongly in order to make up for the fact that there's less force per muscle fiber. It activates more fibers. So in the top position of a clam, when your knee is as high as you can get it, your muscle is activating very, very strongly, but it's producing very, very little force. And as we said before, high levels of mechanical tension, or in other words, force, on individual muscle fibers is the main stimulus for strengthening. So at the top position of a clam, even though the muscle is contracting maximally, you will not get much of a strengthening benefit because it's not able to produce much force in that position. So that is why activation of a muscle and strengthening are not the same thing. And just because you can activate a muscle more strongly at a certain position doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get a better strengthening effect for the muscle in that position. So, with that said, what are the things that will influence how effective an exercise is in strengthening the abdominals or any muscle really well that's going to depend on depend on three things it's going to depend on the direction of the force that is applied to the body you know whether the force is gravity or a spring or an external load of some kind because the direction of the force will determine which muscles are in the position to resist that force 
right? If the force is coming from in front, the abdominals will work hard. If the force is coming from behind, the back muscles will work hard. So the direction of the force is the first of the three things that determines how effective an exercise is going to be. The second thing is the size of the force. In science, we'd say it's the amplitude of the force in exercise science. The amplitude just means size. So the direction of the force and the size of the force, right? So if you're doing teaser uh, and you weigh 50 kilos, the force is coming from in front, it's working your abs, and 50 kilos you know, is working your abs with 50 kilos worth of load. But if you weigh 100 kilos, there's going to be twice as much load on your abs, right? So there's going to be a greater force. So it's going to result in more strengthening of the abs. The third thing that, and final thing that's going to determine the effectiveness of a given exercise to strengthen the abs or any muscle is the ability of that muscle to produce force at the joint angle where it's challenged. And the ability of the muscle to produce force is going to be determined by the length-tension relationship. So if a muscle's in its maximally shortened or maximally lengthened position, it's going to produce a lot less force regardless of how much load's on it. It's just not going to be able to produce enough force to cause a meaningful strengthening stimulus, most likely. I'm going to put an asterisk on that and say that sometimes in the fully lengthened position, there might be an exception to that, but that's a conversation for another day. So in order to elicit a strengthening, an effective strengthening response for the abs or any muscle, we need to apply a force in a direction that is going to challenge the abs. We need to apply a large enough force that is going to challenge the abs. And we need to put the abs in a position, or in other words, the spine in a position, where the abs can in fact produce force. And the mid-range position of the abs is going to be around about neutral. Now, going into a posterior pelvic tilt or going into a little bit of spinal flexion is not going to meaningfully alter the amount of recruitment of the abdominals, or sorry, the amount of load on the abdominals. But going somewhere, you know, to maximum spinal flexion will probably increase the recruitment but decrease the load on the abdominals. So I would say that a long stretch in neutral versus a long stretch in a fully flexed position, you would probably be able to uh, get more strengthening stimulus uh, in neutral or slight flexion Whereas in full flexion, now the the Joseph Pilates uh, long stretch is not in full flexion, it's, it's in more like a hundreds position, so it's not full flexion. In full flexion, you would probably, and I haven't seen a study on this, but just going from you know, physiology and what I know about EMG studies, you probably get more EMG activity, so more electrical activity, more recruitment, more activation, but probably less tension and thus less uh, strengthening. So... 
when we actually look at exercises that recruit the abdominals, we see that uh, you can recruit the abdominals by uh, shortening them maximally, which recruits them a lot, but doesn't necessarily load them a lot. Or you can recruit them by keeping them relatively in the mid-range and then applying a high level of load to them. And so when we, when we keep them relatively in the mid-range and apply a high level of load, we see very, very high levels of recruitment. And there was a study done in 2020, it was actually it wasn't a study, it was a systematic review called Core Muscle Activity During Physical Fitness Exercises, a systematic review by Oliva Lozano uh, and Jose Muyo, apologies for butchering those names, those Spanish names. Um, and what they found was, uh, quote, the main findings indicate that the greatest activity of the rectus abdominis, external oblique, and erector spinae muscles was found in free weight exercises. The greatest internal oblique activity was observed in core stability exercises, while the traditional exercises, so that would be like curl-ups and planks and bridges, showed the greatest multifidus activation. So high, highly loaded free weight exercises like back squats and split squats are actually generated very, very high levels of abdominal recruitment and load. However, in a Pilates context, fear not, because there are some very effective uh, body weight exercises for the abdominals as well. And so Many of the exercises that we traditionally use in Pilates for abs are great for abs, but some are more great than others. Now, according to this study, um, and something that I've talked about in just about every Pilates instructor course I've taught, uh, the first one I want to talk about is the obliques exercise. So if you, this would be the crisscross, if you learned in classical or if you learned in a more contemporary style, it might be called obliques, but basically a twisted ab curl, right? Hands behind head, opposite elbow to opposite knee. And I was taught this within the stop plate system under the name obliques. And what... <laughs> What this study found was actually that in the uh, oblique muscles, the twisted curl-up resulted in less recruitment <laughs> of the uh, obliques. So for the internal oblique, the static curl-up with the hands behind the neck, hips, hips flexed 60 degrees and knees flexed at 90 degrees was the exercise with the highest percentage of um, activation of the internal obliques. Without a twist, it activated at 62% of their maximum contraction. With a twist, it activated at 57%. So less oblique recruitment with a twist. You reduce the recruitment with a twist. And why is that? It's because the twist is not resisted. The curl-up is resisted by gravity. Gravity wants to pull you down, but the curl-up, uh, sorry, the twist is not resisted in that um, supine oblique twist. So that's not to say that twisting is not good for your obliques, but just that particular exercise, lying on your back and twisting, twisted curl-up, 
there's no load, there's no resistance to the twist. So uh, you're actually better off just leaving the twist out if your goal is to maximize load on the obliques. Right, so but that's so that's that's not a great <laughs> oblique exercise. But if we want to get to the exercises that were the best in this systematic review of sixty-seven, I think randomized uh, sixty-seven studies with about twelve hundred odd participants, what they found was the number one was, was basically tied for first place were two different fitball exercises. They were both versions of plank on a fitball with elbows on the fitball, feet on the floor. And one was called, uh, they called it a a plank with hip extension. So it's basically lifting one leg, or you might think of it as like a leg pull front, okay? Prone, elbows on the plank, lift one leg. Um, that uh, was very high recruitment for all of the abdominal muscles. So rectus abdominis, internal obliques, external obliques. Now, most of these studies didn't study transversus abdominis because it's deep to all of these muscles and it's hard to get to it with surface electrodes. So most of these studies didn't uh, measure transversus abdominis activity. So plank on a fitball with one leg up, significant recruitment of all of the abdominal exercise, presumably because there's a lot of load from the full body plank, plus there's instability from the ball, plus there's rotational force to resist because you have an an asymmetrical base of support. You know, one leg is off the floor. The other exercise that was equally effective for recruiting all of the abdominals was also on a fitball, was called stir the pot. And so that is where you have, uh, again, a prone plank on a fitball, elbows on the fitball, feet on the floor, and you keep your body still and circle your elbows clockwise and then counterclockwise so that the ball makes a circle on the floor underneath your shoulders. And again, that sort of produces an asymmetrical base of support which significantly loads the obliques, right? And the rectus abdominis is challenged a lot just by the fact that you're in a full-length plank. So those two exercises uh, on a fitball, plank on a fitball with one leg raised and uh, stir the pot with your elbows on the fitball and circling the fitball around. Those are the, the most effective exercises for recruiting all of the abdominals. Closely followed, so these are the these are the like body weight exercises. The actual most effective exercise were all free weight exercises like back uh, bell, bell, barbell back squat, uh, kettlebell swings, um, Bulgarian split squats. Um, but the most effective body weight exercise were those two I just mentioned, plus a plank in a posterior pelvic tilt with scapular abduction. So that is basically protracted scapulae, right? So imagine a plank tuck your pelvis under, and then lift up out of your arms so that your shoulders round. So that basically becomes, guess what, the gymnastic hollow body position. So in that gymnastic hollow body position, uh, possibly because uh, you know when we're abducting the scapulae, we're recruiting uh, you know more of those torso, muscle, torso muscles, uh, like potentially serratus anterior and pec uh, particularly serratus anterior because that's going to um, you know, feed 
in, uh, interdigitate um, with the uh, external obliques. That might be a, a mechanism for increasing the activation there, or it might just be that those muscles are in a shortened position and therefore are recruited more, even though they're not necessarily loaded more in that position. So that may or may not be a great muscle, an exercise for strengthening abs, uh, but it's a great exercise for recruiting abs. Uh, and I think that is basically uh, the ones that they found to be the most uh, effective. Uh, V-sits were also very good. So basically, you know, that's a gymnastics, that's basically a fast teaser <laughs> from gymnastics, okay? Um, uh, we're also very effective. But just to give you an sort of a sense of the sort of level of recruitment of, of muscles in these exercises. Uh, the static curl up, okay, with hands behind the head. Uh, the rectus abdominis was recruited at 81% of its maximum. Okay. Uh, the front plank on fitball uh, was... 145% for the front plank on fitball, okay, uh, 145%, so that's almost double, okay, what a, a V-sit was. Uh, the A barbell back squat at six rep max was 280% of the maximum, right, so very much more. So barbell back squats, Bulgarian split squats were also over 200%, um, was very, very uh, high activation of those muscles with very high load. Um, so the absolute you know, gold standard exercises for abs, I would have to say, are, are probably free weight uh, exercises. Um, and the you know very good second best exercises for abs or the best body weight exercises for abs would be uh, elbows on a fitball, versions of elbows on a fitball uh, with stir the pot or single leg raise um, or um, a plank with the posterior pelvic tilt and scapular abduction. And you could, you know, extrapolate a lot of those onto Pilates apparatus, right? You know, you could go oh, long stretch with a leg raised, you know, that would be awesome. Uh, what about long stretch with an arm raised to create that asymmetrical base of support? So we could extrapolate out a lot of these same positions to a Pilates apparatus. Or if we did, say, a plank on the Pilates reformer or on the mat with a barbell in one, uh, sorry, a dumbbell in one hand or a flex band in one hand to create more rotational load on the torso, that would, you know, presumably based on what we've seen here, significantly increase the load and thus the strengthening effect on the abs. All right, dear listener, I hope you found that uh, interesting. I hope it uh, helped you and I will catch you in the next one. Much love. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. 
two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in uh, link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.